Well, good morning, Southwinds. It's great to see you today. I want to welcome you as we are worshiping God together. And before we get into our study, I want to update you on a couple of things. Uh, the first thing is I am excited to announce that Southwinds is going solar this fall. Uh, we're going to be building a solar parking structure um, out in part of the east lot, uh, east of our current buildings. Uh, this is going to provide energy savings for us each year and for years to come. It's also going to provide shady parking spots for whoever gets to church first. And so <laughs> we will see whether or not we continue to believe the first will be last and the last will be first. So, And we anticipate the completion of this uh, structure by the middle of October. So you can be looking forward to that. And then second, I want to update you on the progress on our new next-gen auditorium. You've been watching that happen. It's exciting to see. Uh, a few weeks ago, we received an update uh, on our projected date of occupancy, and there has been a delay. Probably you're not surprised. Uh, but our new date is now March the 3rd, 2019. And so I just want you to know about that, and I want to encourage you uh, to continue to pray. I want to encourage you and thank you if you are giving generously to keep doing that. Uh, we need prayers. We need generosity as we continue uh, down uh, this journey. Uh, during the fall and during the next year, beginning of that year, we will be giving you updates as we have news. So it's exciting to see what God is doing. He's continuing to move. And amen is what I have to say. How about you? Amen. So uh, you'll want to get your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 29. Today we're continuing our summer series, Tell Me a Story. We've been looking at different Old Testament stories. And I just have to tell you, we have an incredible story today in this chapter in Genesis. It's a story that really is both strange and profound. Uh, I heard it many times growing up in church. I've read it myself many times, but about 20 years ago, uh, Tim Keller preached a message on this passage that really captivated me and really opened its meaning up for me in a way I'd never seen before. And I want to share some of his insights. I'm using his title today, and I'm indebted to him uh, for a lot of this message. Now, in this story, we're going to encounter a man named Jacob, uh, his uncle Laban, and then Laban's two daughters, uh, Leah and Rachel. And you're going to see that this story would make a, a great Netflix original series. I just have to tell you, it has everything in it. It's got betrayal and sex and family drama and scandal. In some ways, it feels like a very modern story because... It really does show the crazy things that we will do for love. Have you ever known someone who just did something insane for love? Uh, like maybe they moved across country with no commitment from the other person, or, or they quit their job, or maybe they alienated all their friends and families, or maybe they, they got a tattoo, and they re wish later they didn't have that tattoo. Uh, I heard about this one poor guy who fell so in love with this girl that shortly after they started dating, when she told him about her brother who needed a kidney transplant, he donated his kidney to her brother to impress her. Well, shortly after the operation, he found out that the brother was actually her ex-boyfriend that she was still in love with, and she soon broke up with the kidney donor so she could marry her fake brother. Well, this story we're going to read today is about that sort of thing. Now, to understand it, it is important that you grasp 
some of the backstory, and so I'm going to review that with you. If you've read earlier in Genesis, uh, you would have learned about Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. And God told Abraham that he was going to be the ancestor one day of God's Messiah, that, that through Abraham's lineage, God would bring someone into the world to right all the wrongs, to heal the shame, to forgive the sin, uh, to uh, just deal with the misery that people everywhere experience in this fallen and broken world. Abraham, of course, has a son named Isaac, and eventually Isaac marries a girl named Rebekah, and eventually they have twin sons named Jacob and Esau. Now, these twins could not have been more different. Uh, as they grew up, Esau was what we might call a man's man. He ate lots of red meat. He liked to hunt. Uh, we learn, interestingly, that he was really hairy. In fact, uh, he was born that way. His name literally means red and hairy. And they named him that way because that's how he came out. It was sort of like naming your kid Fuzzy. Um, you know, we're made to understand that he came out looking sort of like a Chia pet. And uh, when I think of Esau, this is the image that I have. Um, this is the kind of guy we're talking about here. He was a NASCAR fan, and he really loved Dale Earnhardt. And so that's Esau, at least the way I think of him. Now, Esau was also the firstborn, which meant he got the blessing it meant he got the birthright, which gave him the majority of the family inheritance. Now contrast that with Jacob, who was more of a mama's boy. He stayed inside a lot, and he liked to cook, and he dressed fashionably, and he had lots of special shampoos. <laughs> Isaac, the dad, prefers Esau, and he makes that clear. This, of course, wounds Jacob, and so Jacob... Uh, begins to scheme a way to steal his brother's blessing. Uh, by the time we get to the part of the story we're focusing on, uh, Isaac is really old and he thinks that he's going to die. And so he tells Esau to go hunting and kill some game and cook him a stew which he loved, bring it back, and they could eat it together before he gave his son Esau the blessing. Now at this point in Isaac's life, Isaac could not see, he could not hear very well. And so while Esau is out hunting, Jacob makes a goat stew and he dresses up in Esau's clothes. He attaches the skin of the goat to his arms and to his neck, which says a whole lot, I think, about Esau. I mean, you know, when someone can pretend they're you by dressing in the skin of a dead goat, well, that's kind of weird, isn't it? And so he walks in to greet his father, lowers his voice, hi, dad, uh, it's Esau. And they have the meal and Isaac, of course, is deceived. He gives Jacob the blessing, and soon after he leaves, Esau returns, and Esau comes in, and he says, hey, Dad, I'm here. And Isaac realizes what has happened. He says, son, it's too late, because Jacob has deceived his dad and betrayed his brother. Now, Jacob's name literally means deceiver. And again, this is a pretty odd name to give a baby. He comes out and you look at him and you name him Little Liar. Uh, so, you know, you have one son, Fuzzy. You have the other son who's Liar. But there's this play of words going on. And what happened, maybe you remember, when these twins were born, uh, Esau comes out first. And as he is coming out of the birth canal, a hand reaches out from behind him and grabs his heel. And so when the second child, Jacob, comes out, 
they call him heel grabber, which in Hebrew is Jacob. Uh, this word had a double meaning, of course, and it could mean uh, things like trickster or deceiver. And so he is named heel grabber at birth. But as we see so often in the Bible, the name fits because it describes the person's character. Jacob grows up a deceiver. He ends up stealing Esau's privileges. Of course, he does this fulfilling God's prophecy about who would be the one who carried the messianic seed. Uh, when he steals the blessing, uh, Esau is furious. He vows that he's going to kill Jacob. And so Rebekah, the mother, sends Jacob, her favorite son, running hundreds of miles across the wilderness to her relatives who live in a place called Haran. Eventually, Jacob arrives at the home of his uncle Laban, and that brings us to the main part of this story for today. So let's read, and we're going to begin in the second half of verse 14 in Genesis 29. Here's what it says. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, in Hebrew, this means Rachel was smoking hot. <laughs> Leah, on the other hand, well, she was not hot. And the narrator tells us that in two not very subtle ways. Um, she sa he says, first of all, that Leah had weak eyes and Honestly, scholars are not really completely clear on what this word in Hebrew means, but it is clearly contrasted with Rachel's beauty. And so that tells us it can't be about Rachel's vision. It can't be that she was, say, nearsighted. Because if it was, then it would say Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel could see really, really far. It doesn't say that. It must mean something about how her eyes made her really unattractive. Uh, maybe they protruded badly from her face. Most probably, I think it means that when she was facing east, one of her eyes was checking out on things in the north and the other was monitoring activity somewhere down south, something like that. Now, the other thing that tells us Leah was unattractive is the meaning of her name. Her, her name in Hebrew means literally cow. Now, you might say, well, it's a different culture. Maybe it had a different implication in Hebrew. No, I think calling someone a cow is an insult in almost every culture. And if your name today happens to be Leah, I am so sorry, but you should talk to your parents, not me. <laughs> Verse 18 says, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger, younger daughter, Rachel. And so we learn here, Jacob is smitten with Rachel. Now, some of you, you're probably thinking, what a sexist pig. I mean, he only evaluates women by their looks. The Bible is so backward. That's what I hate about the Bible. It's just so primitive. It's intolerant. And I say, yeah, I am so glad that we are part of a society that doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> Valuating people by appearances. We've advanced way beyond that. Well, Jacob says to Laban, I want to marry Rachel. And Laban says, well, there's got to be some kind of a bride price. And Jacob immediately says, I know I'll work for seven years. And you need to know that he is paying an exorbitant price. Uh, just to put this in perspective from what we know, the going rate for dowries in that region of the world in those days was probably 30 to 40 shekels. 
the average monthly wage of a worker was like one to one and a half shekels a month. And so Jacob is probably offering somewhere around four times or more uh, the usual amount. And we're meant to hear from that how obsessed Jacob really is. We're also meant to understand that Jacob really screwed up here. Because when you're talking to a con artist, you never let them know your area of weakness. And that's what Laban is. And Laban sees this weakness in Jacob, and he knows he's got him. You see, in Laban, Jacob has met his match because Jacob's a liar and Jacob's a con artist, but so is Laban. Only thing is, Laban has been at it for 25 extra years. He is much more experienced in this. So verse 19, Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. And I just want to point out, side note, do you see anywhere in that statement of Laban's that he says yes to Jacob's proposal? Listen carefully. Verse 20, So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed only like a few days to him because of his love for her. Verse 21, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. Now, that's kind of a crass thing to say to the father of your future bride, isn't it? <laughs> but you need to know in Hebrew, it's even harsher than that. Jacob says, give me my wife so I can have sex with her. I mean, it's about as blunt as you can put it. Uh, Robert Alter, who is a leading Jewish scholar um, of Genesis, teaches at Cal Berkeley. He writes that it's very out of character for ancient Middle Eastern authors to state something in so, in so vulgar um, or blunt a way. And most translations try to soften it some for our ears. But it's written for us to see just how obsessed Jacob is with her. For seven years, Jacob has been thinking about one thing. Now, I want to point out here that Jacob is doing what a lot of people do with deep disappointment in their lives. They search for the answer to their life's problems in finding that one, that true romantic love. Someone who will fulfill you, someone who will give you meaning, someone who will make your life worth living. It's kind of that Jerry Maguire moment. You know, you complete me. That's what's going on here. That's what people do today. That's what Jacob was doing. Verse 22. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. Now, again, to understand this, you need to know this was a very elaborate celebration. Lots and lots of food, lots and lots of drinking. Throughout this celebration, a veil would have completely covered the bride's face. And Jacob is so happy that he is pounding down the booze. And so as the party ends that first day, uh, he takes his veiled wife back to his tent. It's completely dark, of course, no electricity. And they spend their life, their first night together. Jacob feels like for the first time in his entire life, something has gone right. But then verse 25 comes. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And literally the Hebrew says, behold, it was Leah. Behold indeed. (laughs) I mean, you know, some of you, you have some bad honeymoon stories, right? But I don't think anything like this has ever happened to any of you. You know, you roll over in the morning light and you say, wait, you're, you're not your hot sister, 
if that has happened to you, you should probably come up after the service for prayer. <laughs> Truth is, you probably need more than prayer. You probably need professional counseling, okay? But Jacob, he's furious, of course. And he goes to Laban and says, what's the deal? Now look at verse 26. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Now, I have always wondered why Jacob didn't protest and say, you know, that would have been a great point to make seven years ago. Because no custom truly gives Laban the right to commit fraud. But Jacob never even insists that Laban honor the contract. He doesn't offer a single word of rebuttal or argument. And you have to ask, why not? I think that when he says to Laban, why have you deceived me? As he hears the echo of those words, he realizes it is the exact same phrase that his father Isaac had said to him. And when Laban says it is our custom to honor the firstborn, I think Jacob remembers how he had stolen the right of the firstborn from his older brother. Jewish commentators in the Middle Ages in the Talmud said, used to write that just like Isaac had reached out in the dark thinking it was Esau and Jacob deceived him, so on that night Jacob reached out in the dark for Rachel and Laban deceived him. I think the dagger of conscience pierces Jacob's soul because the deceiver has been deceived. In verse 25, Jacob literally says to Laban, you hayakod me or you Jacobed me. Jacob, he's brought face to face with who he is. Verse 28, Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and he worked for Laban another seven years. And so this story of obsession continues. Jacob is so obsessed, not even this disappointment can deter him. He overpays for uh, Rachel doing it again. And of course, Laban agrees. Uh, Laban uh, agrees uh, to help things out, I think. Give Rachel to him right now instead of making him wait for seven years. And maybe you could think of it this way. He got Rachel on credit uh, he got Leah on the layaway program. But when you put this whole story together, what you're really made to begin to think about is how bad this must have been for poor Leah. All her life, she has grown up in the shadow of her stunning sister. And the only way, think about this, the only way her conniving dad can get her married off is to get some guy wasted and swap her out in the dark. We may smile at the humor in some of this, but in the end, it really is unbearably sad. All her life, like any other girl, she has dreamed of being a wife and being a mom, and now she actually is. And so she really wants to please Jacob, make him happy, but now he's married also to her sister Rachel, and she has to watch up close and personal every day as he delights in the sister that she's always stood in the shadow of, that she's always been compared negatively to. Poor Leah. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, 
he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, which literally means see a son. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Leah says, a son, now, now maybe Jacob will love me. I may not be pretty, but Rachel can't have sons and I can. And so she names this boy Reuben. See a son. Won't this make me lovable now? Does it work? Look at verse 33. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Now, Simeon sounds like the Hebrew for heard, and it's like it didn't work the first time, but she's still unloved and still hoping against hope that this will change things. Maybe this time, she says, I will be heard because God has heard my prayers and given me a son that will make make Jacob love me. And verse 34 says, again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me. Because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. Now, Levi sounds like the Hebrew word for attach. And so she's hoping that this will attach her to her husband. She's hoping the third time would be a charm. But it didn't change anything. Just like Jacob, Leah is dealing with her disappointment in life by reaching out for that one true love. And Jacob, he's looking for it in romance and sex and beauty. She's looking for it in marriage and family. She has a son. And here's what's going on as she's giving birth. She's thinking, now I'll be seen. I'll be visible. Now someone will hear me. Now someone will be attached to me. But each time she's left empty. You see, when we deal with disappointment in life, think about this, we often respond just like she did. We didn't find what we were looking for in that romance, but what we think always, right, is, well, maybe the next one. We didn't find what we were looking for in this job, but I know if I get a better one. We we didn't find what we were looking for in this city, but if I can move to a better city, that will change things. Maybe if I can just climb one step higher on the, the social economic ladder, that will do it. Maybe the next one. We're like Leah. We just keep having sons, thinking that will solve the problem. But it always ends up the same. But then... There in the last verse, we get, we get the gospel. And this is the best part of the whole story. Verse 35 says, She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. So some of you are going, wait, what? Um, I didn't see the gospel in that verse. It just says she stopped having kids. Well, there's a couple things that are going on here that you can see if you look closely. Notice how the word Lord is spelled in most translations. You'll see it most of the time. It's going to be in all caps. This is a a translation device to let us know that this is God's covenant name, Yahweh. As you read through Genesis, typically you will see two primary names for God. And most translations handle them like this. Whenever you see G-O-D, it's almost always Elohim, which is like the generic name for a God. It was used by all peoples in that region for all faiths. But then sometimes you'll see 
in all caps, L-O-R-D. That is a translation of Yahweh, God's covenant name. And so if someone refers to God as Yahweh, it is because they have come to know and come to believe in the promises that God made to Abraham. And that's the name that Leah uses here. That's the name she uses to name her last son. Praise to the God who has made this covenant with me, Judah. See, in other words, Leah has stopped trying to earn Jacob's love through having sons, and she has received God's love given to her as a gift, and that becomes the source of her joy and satisfaction in life. Leah has been floundering around now for years like a mad woman, doing anything she can to deal with this hell that she's living in, wondering, feeling, asking, how can I get out of this? I always knew I was homely. I always knew that people didn't think anything of me, that I was nothing in the eyes of the world. And now, every day, where I live, it is shoved in my face. How am I going to survive this? And she thinks for a while, if I have a son, if I have a son, But every time she has a son, she cries out and she faces her husband thinking, now my husband will save me. Now my husband will love me. But this time, the fourth time with Judah, when she looks at her child and she rejoices in that new life, this time she begins to call on the name of the Lord. This time she praises Yahweh. Now we know the rest of the story. We know that that Judah is going to grow up to be the ancestor of Messiah. We know that Jesus will be called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And we know that this means her ancestry, her lineage, is ultimately going to become infinitely beautiful, not because of any physical beauty she had passed on, but because of the gracious gift of God. You see, right in the middle of her painful and ugly In unloved life, Leah learned the gospel. And she got it long before Jacob, the famous patriarch, got it. He's not going to have his gospel moment for a number of years. She gets it first. Well, that's the story. What does it teach us? Several things I want to point out. You can write them down in your notes. Here's the first one. And it's kind of a general observation about the whole story. Sin always causes destruction in our lives. You know, a lot of times, a lot of us think that sin is just something we do. You know, we break God's commandment and we may hurt other people in doing that. Sometimes we damage ourselves in in doing that, but we kind of think that's all. Like sin is this event or sin is just this action that we do. But the Bible says something different. The Bible says when you sin, you create and you release a devastating power that careens around your life indefinitely. Look what's going on here. God had told Isaac, Jacob's father, the older will serve the younger. In other words, God had told Isaac, the second one out is the one I have chosen. Messiah is going to come through him. But when those twins are born, Isaac ignores God and he puts his heart on Esau. He favors Esau, clearly loving him more than he loves Jacob. And Isaac's favoritism wreaks devastation on both boys as they grow up. It distorts their character. Esau grows up willful and proud and lacking self-control because he gets whatever he wants from his dad. Jacob turns into a liar and a deceiver and a manipulator. 
And it doesn't stop. Do you realize that Jacob is doing the very same thing to Leah that his father did to him? And by the way, don't forget, he had already done back to his father what his father had done to him. You keep on reading in Genesis, and you're going to see it continue. Jacob's favoritism spills over into the lives of his children. Leah's children will hate Rachel's children when they finally show up. Later on, Joseph is born to Rachel, first born to her, and he becomes a favorite son. Jacob continues to play favorites, and it results in Jacob's sons eventually selling their brother Joseph into slavery. And then they come back home and they deceive their father, Jacob, and they tell him that his favorite son is dead. And Jacob goes through utter hell. Lie begets lie. Sin begets sin. Hell begets hell. You see, you never do sin, friend. Sin always does you. Sin sort of like dropping a boulder into water. The shock waves go out and they go on and on and on. You never, ever get away with sin. Anytime there is a violation of God's will for how people should live together in this world, and you do that, you never get away with it. That's the first thing we see. Second thing this story teaches us is this. In the morning, it's always Leah. Now, we see this in verse 25, and I like how Tim Keller describes what's going on here. He says this, quote, All life here is marked by cosmic disappointment. All life here is marked by cosmic disappointment. Now, I want to be real clear here. Leah is the most sympathetic character in this story. So what I'm saying is not in any way a criticism of Leah, but this shows us something that we all need to learn. I have a brief commentary on Genesis. It's written by a scholar named Derek Kidner. And he says this, quote, The words, behold, it was Leah, are a miniature of our disillusionment experienced from Eden onwards. All life past the Garden of Eden. All life in this broken, fallen world. It's going to be, there's going to be disillusionment. And this tells us something we all need to realize. Some of you have, but there are many of you who haven't. And it is this, no matter what you hope to find in marriage or family, no matter what you hope to experience through love and intimacy, no matter what validation you hope to earn through career or success or possessions in the morning, it is always going to be Leah. No matter what you think is Rachel, it will always be Leah. I don't know if anybody ever put it any better than C.S. Lewis did in Mere Christianity. I want to read you what he writes. He says, Most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learning careers. I am speaking of the very best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. 
I think everyone knows what I mean. The spouse may be a good spouse, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and it may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. In the morning, it's always Leah. Have you felt that? Have you experienced that? Maybe you've never thought about it before today. Will you realize it today? See, your constant searching and striving, always thinking you little, need a little bit more, just one more step up the career ladder that you need to get together with that special, that beautiful person, just one more trip or just one more purchase, whatever it is, whoever you are, whenever you think you have finally found Rachel. In the morning, it's always Leah. It's always Leah. And that's why you need to realize the third thing I want you to see. The third thing this story teaches us, what we're all searching for is Jesus. You see, every one of us is on a search, whether we know it or not. And in that search, whether you realize it or not, what you're looking for, what you're searching for is Jesus. You see, both Jacob and Leah are on a search. Jacob thinks the answer for him is in riches and in sex, and he'll do whatever he can to get it. He'll burn whatever bridges he has to with his family. He will pay whatever price. Leah thinks her answer is in being a mom and a wife. But both of them are trying to fill the void in their heart through what the Bible calls an idol, a a substitute God. And we've talked about this before. Idols are anything that you substitute for God. And one of the Hebrew words related to worship is the word kabod. And it's usually translated glory. This word literally means weight, something that is heavy. And so it tells us to give something glory, especially when we make it an idol, is to give that thing or that person too much weight in your life. And I've told you before, idols are not usually bad things. Idols are usually good things that we turn into God things. And we all make them. John Calvin once said, the human heart is an idol factory. We're always manufacturing new idols. But the Bible is telling us, it's trying to make us see that idols always let us down, that morning always comes, and you're always going to wake up, and you're going to turn over, and you're going to see, behold, it's Leah. So what do you do next? Well, when you realize that nothing in this world can fully satisfy you, that everything that you're looking for really ultimately is an idol, you will do one of four things. The first thing that people often do is blame the idol. Uh, And when people do that, they usually replace it with a new version. They just get another one a little different. Kelly Clarkson, who is the original American idol, got into a romantic relationship after she won and made it big. That fell apart. Any one of her songs, she described it saying, I fell so hard because of you. I'm ashamed of my life because it's empty. Now, did her next song talk about a whole new focus in life? No, no, she just got a new guy because that's what we do. Sometimes people will switch idols. I saw a great illustration of this recently. Taylor Swift had a song a couple of years ago. It's called Out of the Woods. And by the way, just in case you think I'm telling you you shouldn't listen to these singers, that's not what I'm saying, so don't write me any emails. Um, But this whole song is about a relationship on the rocks, and the music video ends with these words on the screen. She lost him, but she found herself. And somehow, 
That was everything. As in, this relationship turned out to be Aaliyah. But in knowing where herself, she found where true joy actually is. Um, I want to say kindly that it will be a very good day for Taylor Swift when she learns what we all need to learn. Making self an idol also never works. Have you discovered what I've discovered? Um, I've discovered that the one who disappoints me the most, the one who has broken more promises to me than anyone else is me. See, all idols let us down. Why? Because we were made for God, because we're searching really for Jesus. That's why Augustine said our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So you can blame the idol. You could also blame yourself. Some people do that. They just end up hating themselves. Some people blame the world. You you can harden yourself, get real cynical. Or you can do the fourth thing, which is the answer. You can realize that you were created for another world. You can realize that Jesus is the true bridegroom that we all seek, that Jesus was the one who could give to Leah the unconditional love she craved, this love that went beyond physical attraction or accomplishment in life, a love that was not conditioned or dependent on anything in the one loved. Jesus, friend, is the bridegroom that you are seeking as well. The arms that you are searching for in love or any pursuit or success or any validation, those arms are really his arms. That is what you are looking for. He is what you really want. Here's the fourth lesson. God sets his love on us, not because we're beautiful, but to make us beautiful. Sally Lloyd-Jones has written a book called The Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a book for children. And in this, she says, God doesn't need us to be beautiful so that he can love us with all his heart. We will be beautiful because he loves us. See, God doesn't love us because we're valuable. We are valuable because he loves us. God doesn't love us because we are pure. His love purifies us. God doesn't love us because we are strong. We become strong through his love in us, for us. And so when you feel like you're Leah, you should reflect on two things. The first is this. God has set his love on you unconditionally. That means his love for you is not conditioned on, dependent on anything about how you perform or anything about who you are. Uh, Dan and I, I have four kids. They're all adults now. And when I look back on uh, raising them, one of the very best times that we had with all of them was that season, that short season when they were little, watching them take their first steps. Isn't that one of the best parts of parenting? You guys can talk, actually. It's okay. (laughs) And yet, we all know that part of that season involves a lot of stumbling and falling, right? They don't, kids don't just take off walking right away. They don't do a really good job walking at first, right? And when I think about that, I have never known a dad who watched his kids try to take that first step and fall and then respond by saying, well, that's it. I got an idiot, I guess. (laughs) 
I don't know about a dad who goes to the kid, what's wrong with you? Look, watch, I can do this. Seriously, what's the problem? How come you can't walk? (laughs) You know, good parents don't do that. And our Heavenly Father is a good parent. And he watches us trying to walk. We stumble, we fall. And he just says, let me help you up. Keep going. It's getting better. You're doing a great job. Because his love is not dependent on anything in us. Second thing you should reflect on is this. One day, God will make your outside match the beauty of Christ he's put on your inside. And that's not just poetic language. 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He is not done with us, and he's not going to stop until his work is complete in us. See, when you really grasp these truths, you really let them seep into your soul, you will become free of your addiction to others' approval. You will be released from the captivity you feel toward your spouse as you depend on them for affirmation. You won't cling to other people to save your life and make you whole because you know Jesus saves you. Jesus makes you whole. You won't need someone else to feel like you are loved or like you have worth because you already have that in Jesus. And the good news flowing out of that will be for the first time in your life, you will actually be free to truly love someone else instead of loving them to use them to get something you need. Here's the last thing I want you to see. Number five, the story teaches us that we've come to understand the gospel when we stop striving to find love. And again, that's what happens in verse 35. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When you rejoice in a love that you don't have to earn, a love that cannot be taken away, like Leah, your praise and your joy will not be about how many sons you have or whether or not your husband, your spouse loves you or how smart or how pretty you are in the eyes of the world or how much money you make in comparison to everyone else. Your joy will be based entirely on your satisfaction and acceptance in God. Jesus will be the source of your joy. Jesus will be the source of your fulfillment. So the question I have to ask you is this. What does it take for you to be joyful and satisfied? Be honest with yourself. Do, do all things in your world have to be going right for you to feel like that's enough? Or is your relationship with God, is that enough? So you might not have anything that the world says makes life good. You might be relatively poor compared to a lot of other people. You might feel ugly. You might never have found that person you've been looking for your whole life to love you. You might never, never receive from your parents that which they should have given you, that which you should have gotten because you're their child, that which you long for. But you have Jesus. Jesus. 
You have the unconditional love of the Father, and you know that that is better than riches. That is better than the love of a parent. That is better than sons. That is better than possessions. That is better than anything because the truth is what we are all searching for. Jesus. Jesus. And so today, let us thank God for the beautiful story of ugly Leah. Because this story shows me that God loves ugly sinners like me. This story shows me that it is by his grace that I have been saved through faith. And it's not about who I am. It's not about anything that I've done. Not about work so that I, I, I can't boast. This story shows us that God has always saved as a gift. And then once we've received that gift, we can spend the rest of our lives satisfied, joy-filled, giving praise to God, our Heavenly Father, for His unconditional love displayed in His Son, Jesus. And that is our story today. I want to encourage you to bow your heads and pray, giving thanks to the Father. Father God, we give you thanks right now for your amazing grace, this grace that receives us and welcomes us just as we are, Lord, without any conditions. And Lord, we, we uh, confess you don't love us because we're lovely, but because you just love, because you are love. And Lord, would you help us today to see where in our lives we are striving for love in other places? Would you help us, Lord, to see our idols? And would you show us Jesus new and make us see that it is only in him that we will find what we're looking for? Father, for those who may be here today and they've never met you, they don't know you in a personal way, I just pray now that you would grant repentance and faith today, that you would open hearts and minds, that you would bring many men and women to your son. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, your precious son, our loving savior, we pray these things in his name. And all God's people said.